Okay, we are going to finish up Matthew chapter 3 today and move into Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 3, starting from verse 13, it says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Let me just mention again, if you have never been baptized as a believer, in other words, that you believed and then have been baptized, you really ought to be. Some things we learn in the Scriptures by following the examples that are there, and some things are quite explicit. Baptism is quite explicit in the Scripture. This is something we ought to do. In the Great Commission, at the end of, uh, of, of Matthew, it says that, that the disciples were to go out and they were to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then to teach them. And so part of what we do in church is we teach, but one of the first steps is baptism. If you don't walk in baptism, you will always be struggling in your life trying to obey God in many other things. I have seen it time and time again in people's lives. For some reason, this thing of baptism is like a big burden in front of people. It was really quite easy. You just go and you give your name to Roger and you talk with him a little bit and he just understands that you know the Lord, and then you get dunked underwater, and that's about it. It is really very simple. There are other churches where you've got to go through like a six-month program. It's very easy in this church, so to mount this up as some big obstacle in front of you is wrong. It is an act of obedience, and it is not, and, and, and as with anything that the Lord puts in front of us, when we are confronted with with something that He has put before us, we are to obey. And it, we shouldn't take long in trying to figure out, well, should I obey this or shouldn't I? The answer is, yes, you obey and we step out quickly and we do it. Even Jesus Himself submitted Himself to baptism. Okay, now let's look in chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, reading from verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to, to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Alright, so Jesus goes up by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he is being tempted now by the devil. Temptation is not a sin. In other words, if we are tempted, it is not a sin. It is what we do with that temptation. That is where things, things can abound. There was one famous preacher who used to say that, that we, can't, we, 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 uh, we can't control it if, if a bird flies over and, and messes, drops a mess into our hair, but we can certainly prevent them from making a nest in our hair. We can't prevent temptations but it's what we do with it. This is why, if you remember that, that, that whole teaching I gave you on scriptural sexual ethics, which is now up on, on my website, 
along with, with um, every other message now, every message that I'm giving here on Sunday morning is put up there within a couple of days of, of, of my giving the message. But there was this prayer that we can pray when we struggle with sexual temptations. And this prayer gives us great victory. So, when a young man is tempted in the sexual realm, remember that prayer. What we do is we say, Lord, I thank you for the beauty of this woman. She has been made in the image of God. May I never use her as an object of my own lustful gain. And by the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, please take that which is twisted in me because of sin and untwist it. And let me come to see my own sexuality rightly. When we pray a prayer like this, it gives us victory. Young men are tempted in many ways in the sexual realm. But if we take this and use it as a prayer of redemption, we can be redeemed and have our hearts redeemed. Young women can pray that same prayer concerning young men that they are attracted to. And when we pray that prayer, we take that which the enemy has intended to trap us and we turn it around. And we can also pray for that individual. And pray that that woman, for example, if I'm praying this prayer over some woman woman that I see, I can pray, Lord, and let her see her own sexuality rightly. Take that which the enemy has meant for evil and turn it around for good. Turn it around. Now look in verse 2. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. There's some seats right up, right up here on the end there. He had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. I've never known personally anybody to fast 40 days and 40 nights. I've known personally many people who have fasted 30 days. Uh, I've heard people speak that they... That, that, um, uh, uh, I think Bill Bright used to fast for 40 days. Uh, once a year, he'd go through a fasting sequence like that. Um, let me just, just mention a few things on fasting. Fasting is scriptural. I don't know that there's anybody who dislikes fasting more than me. It is very hard for me to fast. Yet I go on fasts about four times a year. And when I say I go on a fast list, that doesn't mean that I skipped a meal. It means it is usually a five to seven day fast. And I'll do something like that three to four times a year as I'm trying to, to, to pray through something. And, and I'll only drink water during that time. And you say, wow, you know, that's really amazing. I wish I could do that. You could do that. And, and it is not something that is easy for me. It is not something that I look forward to at all. Fasting is very difficult. But what happens is you touch something in a spiritual realm. And there are numerous verses on fasting. David fasted. David fasted, it says that he fasted seven days when his son was ill. Uh, in, in Matthew, if you look in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6 verse 16. Matthew 6 verse 16, it says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, but you, when you fast, anoint your head with oil and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men. So look what he says twice. He says, 
when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast. He's assuming that we undergo times of fasting. And those are times of fasting and prayer when we are to fast and we are to pray. There are times like that. And it is really quite clear. And it is not easy for anybody. If you fast to lose weight, it will not work. Yes, you will lose weight, but you will gain it right back. Fasting, you gain your weight right back. I have years of experience with this. It comes right back. Within two weeks, it's all back again. So you don't fast to lose weight. You fast because God is calling you into something to seek. And you know what happens is we feed our faces with carbohydrates, yet our spirits are emaciated. It's like we're Biafran children. We can't even raise our arm to, to shoo away these spiritual gnats that are in our eyes, the, the, these demonic gnats that are in our eyes. It's just, we have no idea so often what it means to really consistently say, I am going to take a period of time and really devote myself to prayer in this. So I will take a subject or two for a particular time or for a particular individual, generally somebody in my family, for example, and I will say, I'm going to fast for five days and pray for this person. And it is miserable for the first couple of days. I mean miserable. Every time somebody walks by with food, I'm like, just follow them. But I've learned that if I start a fast and I say, Lord, I'm going to be going into this fast, would you give me grace through this? Would you give me grace through this and let me touch your heart in this? That I have far greater victory during that time. And then usually by the third day, the intense cravings actually go away. I mean, the cravings never end, but the intense cravings go away. And you can really begin to spend more time in prayer. And then often when I get done with a fast, is when the real times of closeness with God ensue. Fasting is quite scriptural. And I'm not into torturing anybody. I really am not. But this is so scriptural. And... Shame on me if I do not preach to you what the Scriptures teach us. If you look, for example, in, in Acts chapter 13, what did people in the early church do? Because you, know, you may say, well, this was you know, before Jesus rose from the dead. Well, look, in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So Saul and Barnabas were set, set apart to be ministers of the gospel through their local church, fasting and praying. So they were praying and they were fasting. And in verse 3, then when they had fasted and prayed, so it underscores it again. If you look in Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, they had to choose elders for the church. How did they choose them? Through prayer and through fasting. It is not an easy thing at all. And if you think I take on fasting easily, not at all. Even several days before that period, I'm just like, oh, next week is going to be miserable as far as the fast goes. And then I begin to pray for grace. Jesus set apart a time of fasting. 
And it is a scriptural thing. And if you have never fasted, I encourage you to try it. And it will not be easy. And that means you go, try, try to go a day and a half. Skip four meals. And say, Lord, begin to work in this time. And teach me your ways in this. But remember, it's often not until the end of the second or into the third day that you really begin to get through this intense craving for food. But it is a good practice. It is a good practice to have, to learn how to do this. Jesus did it. Okay, Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. And then the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If you are the Son of God, look what He does. He calls into question sonship. If you are the Son of God. What we must remember is that we are God's children. If we have received Him, we are God's children. Look in John. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, it establishes that we are children of God if we believed on Him. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received Him... To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our childhood in Christ, that we are children of God, has been established. And the enemy continually brings in this question. Are you really a child of God? Are you really a child of God? And this is exactly what He did with Jesus. If you are the Son of God. Then he says, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus' reply is to use Scripture right back at him. Again and again, the way Jesus did battle with the enemy was to quote Scripture. He says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He says, it is written that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The enemy comes to him, he says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Go ahead, do it your own way. Go ahead, choose your career all by yourself, no need to pray. Go ahead, choose your spouse all by yourself, no need to pray. Go ahead, make all this happen. This is the temptation. We are constantly tempted by the enemy to do things in our own way, according to our own path. People will say, I don't don't need God to choose a spouse. I can choose my own spouse. I'm like, you are crazy. I mean, of all decisions, that should be a decision you really ought to leave to the Lord, because you don't know what the future is, but He does. Careers that you begin to pray and say, Lord, would you lead me into the right career path? Would you lead me into the path that you would have me? God knows what is best for us. God will lead you. God has the capability to lead you into a job that you enjoy. 
Most Americans say they dislike their work. I love my work. I love what I do. I, I love being in my office. You give me an internet line and, 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 uh, and some journals and, and a laboratory where I can order people around, and I'm happy. And I love my work. I never would have imagined that I would like it this much. But God knows when you commit your careers to God, He knows. He really knows. And the continual temptation from the enemy is, go ahead, take this life all by yourself. Do it by yourself. We need to learn to commit this to God. And then what does he say? He says, but we're to live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, I take this book and I make it my meditation. Every word, everything is important. You can't tear out a single page. You can't write over a single verse. Every verse is absolutely important to us as believers. And it is in this word that we find direction. It is in this word. I can pray for specific understanding. And God will speak to me from the word. Speak to me scripture verses. He will either bring back to my remembrance things that I've read and meditated on already... Or He will give me new things from the chapter that I happen to be reading that day. And I read from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22. When I'm done, I start again. And God speaks through the Word of God. And Jesus said, We live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He says we don't live by bread alone. So He he admits that we need bread. But He says we also need bread. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, just to know John 3.16, is not enough. It is not enough. We must know more. And, and still, to this day, I keep a pocket full of scriptures. And, and uh, where's my pocket full of scriptures? Anyway, I don't know where. <laughs> no, no. Anyway, I usually keep a pocket full of scriptures. I must have left it in my other pants. I keep a pocket full of scriptures, and right now we're, we're, this is a portion that my, my two boys and I are, are memorizing out of, out of the epistle of James, that it talks about faith and works. And we take this passage and we go through it together every morning, because we want to take passages and make it a part of our lives. Will we take this and make it a part of our lives? Will we take the scriptures and do this? This is what he's talking about. When you do this, you get guidance for your life. We are under continual temptation to choose and do things our own way. To date the people we want to date without ever offering up a prayer to God for understanding, Lord, is this the person you would have for me? To choose a career path. To cheat. To steal. And I'm not saying rob a bank. Most of us wouldn't do that. But we are under continual temptation in small ways to cheat in small ways, to do small things. I try so hard not to miss anything on my income tax to pay that I'm supposed to pay. In fact, I will err on the side of paying more than to do something wrong on that. And I believe God has blessed me so much by trying to be honest with everything on that. Software. I don't want any software on my computer that I don't own or that I don't have a license to in some way. Music. I don't want any music on my computer 
or in any of my, my things that I don't own, that I haven't paid for properly or gotten in some legal way. You say, well, God doesn't really care about that. Oh, yes, He does. And if you think that that's just a skeleton in the closet, you just watch. That skeleton will kick that door open all the time. And every time you hear a message like this, all those little things will be chattering. Right there. If there was no problem, you would not be thinking this way. God has us get at all these little details. And when all of my colleagues early on, when we had these computers and I was buying new sets of software for them, they said, what are you doing buying all these sets of software? I said, this is the only way to do it. They said, oh, just put it on all the different computers. I said, you can't do that. It's against the law. And you know what happened? God blessed me with so much research money. I didn't even, buying software was down in the noise. And everyone else was just struggling for money. God will bless you if you follow Him. His word is what keeps us going in the truth. Verse 5, Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the enemy comes to him, takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. Just go ahead, throw yourself down. Because the scriptures say concerning you, on, he will command his angels concerning you, on their hands they will bear you up so that you do not strike your foot against the stone. And what does Jesus do in response? First of all, it's interesting that the enemy begins to quote the scriptures to Jesus. So the devil quotes the scriptures to Jesus. Jesus says in reply, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The enemy tells us, go ahead, do that. Go ahead, go out with those folks. Yeah, they don't know God. And they're going to be partying. Go out. It's, it's really not going to matter. Plus, God forgives, you know. God forgives. So if you do something wrong, He's going to forgive you anyway. We are under perpetual temptation to do things that are wrong. And God speaks words, don't do it. Jesus said, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Look in Jude, the book of Jude. It's just before Revelation. So if you can find the last book, you go one book, one book to the left, and you've got the book of Jude. It's one chapter. Jude, verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though, you know all things, you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Look at that. He says, remember, God took a bunch of people out of Egypt, but He destroyed almost everyone from that initial generation. Almost everyone. He says that there are people in verse 4 that take the grace of God and turn it into licentiousness. Meaning, He gives us that we take it as a license to sin. The grace of God, well, God will forgive me. 
Remember what happens. Even though you're a believer, if you do things wrong with your body, you will pay the same price as an unbeliever. As a believer, if you go around drinking and driving, you pay the same price as an unbeliever. There are things that we are confronted with as believers that we make decisions to do what is right. And the enemy keeps saying, go ahead, do what is wrong. Go ahead. And God does not look favorably upon that and He will take steps sometimes to even have our flesh killed in order to save our soul. God does that. And if you think God never takes a person's life to keep them from going the wrong way with their souls, you have not read the Scriptures. There are numerous examples of that. Let me tell you from my own life. I got saved at the age of 18. And I didn't really start walking with God. I gave my life to the Lord, but I still had a bunch of old friends. And these old friends liked to continue to invite me to different places. And even though I wouldn't run with them the same way that I had been running with them, it was very hard for me to say no to them and to stop going out with them. And I had one friend in particular, and he was a, 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 um, he was a very big and handsome guy, and everybody liked him, and, and, and um, he and I actually had been very good friends, and he used to continue to invite me out. Well, you know what happened is, is about eight months later, after I had, had received the Lord, I came down with a kidney disease that was very painful. I had congenital scarring in my ureter, which meant that, that the kidney was backing up and expanding. And it was misdiagnosed. So I was diagnosed with a spastic colon. And so they were treating me for a spastic colon and my kidney was going nuts. And I was in a lot of pain. A lot of pain. To the point where I was in so much pain, I couldn't go out anymore. And if I had any alcohol, I mean just a little bit, I mean it, it, it was terribly painful for me and nobody knew what was going on. And God used that in my life. And I visited one church after about a year and a half of knowing the Lord. I visited a church and I thought, this is wonderful. And I committed my, my, myself to continue to go to that church and cut off things with my old friend. That week, they properly diagnosed what I had. I had an operation, cleared out the scar tissue, the, the, the kidney contracted, and I had no pain ever since. I was 19 years old at that time. And even though my, my old friends would contact me, I would still say, no, I'm not going out with you anymore. I can't do it. I just can't do it. I knew what God had done. And so this friend, this good friend of mine, his name was Gordon, was going to drive to the city where I was living and come and pick me up. And he was on his way to New York City to visit some friends. And it's really hard when somebody's driven way out of their way to get you to say no to them. And I was praying. I said, Lord, I really don't want to go with him. It is so hard for me to think that he's going to be here in a few hours. And, you know, to say, I can't go with you. I've told him over the phone, but he won't accept it. Well, guess what happened? He was supposed to pick me up at such and such an hour. He was like an hour late and then two hours late. And I got a phone call. He hit a deer with his car on his way to my home and totaled his car. I mean, God was making it clear. I don't want you going that way. God will do things to protect us. Jesus said, but don't tempt God. Don't do it. Even though we say, well, we have security in God. He'll forgive me, blah, blah, blah. You know, 
You know what is wrong. You do not go that way. And God will even take the life of a believer or put them in great pain or put them through things in order to save their soul. God will do that. And there are examples of that. And Paul talks about it with certain men. That I've turned their body over to the devil in order to save their soul, God talk, uh, Paul, Paul writes about. So you see that God will do things to protect us, but we are not to tempt Him. The other thing that the enemy does here is he is quoting Psalm 91, and his quotations are very selective. He says... On their hands they will bear you up so that you do not strike your foot against the stone. That's in in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. And that's where he stops speaking. He says, go ahead, Jesus, you can jump off. God says he's going to protect you. Well, let's look over at at, uh, Psalm 91 and see how selective the enemy can quote the Scriptures. Psalm 91, and if you read verse 11, Psalm 91, verse 11, For He will give His angels charge concerning you, to guard you in all your ways, that you will, they will bear you up in their hands, that you do not strike your foot against the stone. And that's where the enemy stopped quoting. Let's look at the next verse. And you will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. He didn't remind Jesus of that verse. That was the next verse. No, we wouldn't want to remind Jesus of that. It was very clear, even in this passage, that Jesus himself was going to trample upon the serpent. Jesus himself was going to win this one. And if you read this psalm, Psalm 91, it is the psalm of protection. This whole psalm speaks of protection. And how he, will, how he will watch over us as believers. But you and I can only really understand this psalm in the light of eternity. Because we do undergo pain in life. We do undergo suffering. See if you look in verse 5 of Psalm 91. And you will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. Or of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand. But it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. So you see, this is a tremendous promise. That if we follow God, He protects us even from plagues. But you know, there's still things that happen to us in the lives of believers. We still get sick. There is a measure of protection, no doubt. But there are other things that God, in His sovereignty, allows in. We only understand this sort of psalm in the light of eternity. When we will look back from eternity and see, from eternity, that God really did have His hand of protection on me. That even when we went through the loss of a loved one, His hand of protection was still over us. Because he doesn't see death as the end. To God, death is not the end. The believer lives forever in him. Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me shall live even if he dies. And he who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what Jesus said. Jesus asked the question, do you believe this? Jesus said, 
Whoever lives and believes in me shall live even if he dies. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus said that. This is his words in the Gospel according to John. And he said, do you believe this? So even death is not the end to the believer. We understand his protection, this sort of protection in light of eternity. In the last temptation in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. And again, the, day, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will, bow, if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So you see, the devil comes and finally says, If you fall down and worship me, I will give you everything. Everything. All the kingdoms of the world I will give you. And then Jesus said, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The enemy continually tempts us with the things of the world. And as you see this, and he does this a lot with young women. You see this young man? Go ahead, marry him. Yeah, he doesn't know the Lord, but go ahead and marry him. Look, he's so handsome, he's kind, you know, he's funny. and Constantly tempting young women with the wrong man. Enemy loves to do this. He puts before us all these things. But remember, our satisfaction in life, our joy in life, will never be fulfilled in an individual. Never be fulfilled in an individual. And any man or any woman that puts fulfillment, life's fulfillment, in their spouse is in for great disappointment. Because that spouse can never fulfill them totally. Only in the worship of God will we be fulfilled. The adulterer. There was a man. And he felt. He had, he had a wife. He had a child. But he, he, there was this, this young woman at work, and he really enjoyed her company. He could talk to her. It was as if she listened to him. And with his wife, he argued, he felt all the time. But he knew it was wrong to be pursuing a relationship with this young woman when he had a wife and a child at home. But then he thought, really, I'm miserable at home. Why not, why not go this other way? If I, if I had her, it would be so nice. I'd be so fulfilled. I'd be so happy. I love the way, I love the sound of her voice. I love the way she laughs. I love the way she giggles. I love the way she dresses. And so finally, as so often happens in these sort of things, he ended up having an affair. And then usually within a year after the affair, the they, people get a divorce and that's what happened. And he divorced this woman and he ended up marrying this younger woman from work. And then it was less than a year into the marriage he had realized it had now really hit him. He was really no happier than he had been previously. Because you see, unhappiness is not being without something. Real unhappiness is getting that very thing that we have lusted for and seeing that it has brought us no fulfillment. That is real unhappiness. And that is what the adulterer goes through. That is what the adulteress goes through. That is what we go through when we sacrifice something that is there in the worship of God 
for the passing pleasure of sin. Only in the worship of God will we ever be fulfilled. It is not in the, the, the size of a house. It is not in the quality of a car. It is not. It is in God and in Him only and in the worship of God that we will be fulfilled. Fulfillment only comes in the worship of God. And this is what Jesus is saying. The enemy offers him everything. And he says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. We are constantly tempted in this society. It happens a lot to international students. They come from countries where they didn't have anywhere near what they can have here. And they will sacrifice everything in order to get a little piece of this American dream. And then they will see that the dream fades very, very quickly. Only in the worship of God will we truly be fulfilled. Only in the worship of God. That comes in our families, in relationships, only in the worship of God. There are many people who worship God and have small houses and old cars and small salaries and who are the envy of rich people. The absolute envy of rich people longing to have the quality of life that that worshipping family has. It is only in the worship of God that you and I will be fulfilled. Jesus had everything on earth offered to him. And he says, no, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. When you learn to worship him and to serve him, you will be fulfilled. When you learn to worship him and to serve him, only in that will you be fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the the beauty of Your Word and for the character of Jesus who stood fast. Thank You, Father, for that example. How He used Scripture upon Scripture upon Scripture to do battle with the enemy. To show us again and again that fulfillment is in You and You alone. That protection comes from You. But we are not to tempt you. And Father, thank you that Jesus has showed us that only in you, only in you, can we maintain this sonship, this childhood of God. Father, thank you that we have that in you. And we are fulfilled because of you, that you meet our needs. Father, thank you for this example. Lord, I pray for these young people here that You would teach them what it means to worship and to serve You and in that be fulfilled, in that enjoy their career, in that enjoy their spouse. And that they would learn to commit these decisions to You. Learn to pray. Learn to fast. Learn to seek You. Father, that they would take their relationship with God seriously and strongly and make decisions to follow Your way. Father, have mercy on them, I pray. And may they walk according to your way. And I commit them to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.